Welcome to the People First Podcast. And today we have a very special guest in Celeste Cannell. Nailed it, didn't I? Totally. Now, Celeste and I, uh, and I have been friends for well over 12 years now. And in that time, Celeste has not only worked as, you know, one of my personal trainers, because we started a relationship where you were doing some, starting to do some apprenticeship stuff with personal training. She was also a client of mine and had an amazing uh, journey in health and fitness. And that was where I really started to connect with Celeste. And we developed a good quality, good solid friendship that's lasted the, the test of 12 years so far, right? And hopefully another 12 and 24, because I'm not going to die anytime soon. So we're going to keep doing that. But I wanted to bring Celeste here today to talk to you about a few things that she's done recently. Some amazing things. And uh, before we do that, before we, we bust into what she's achieved and what she's done recently, I wanted Celeste to introduce herself. So take it away, Celeste. Hello. Thanks for having me. Long time listener, first time <laughs> as the uh, celebrity guest. Um, it is an honour. Uh, I can't say I've ever been on a podcast before, so definitely tickets ticking something off the bucket list right Beautiful. here. Beautiful. First time for everything. So, um, look, very, very honoured to be here. Um, I do love talking about myself uh, more than... <laughs> That's why I started a podcast, I to know, be fair. right? It's so <laughs> much fun. Um, to be honest, the only thing I like talking about more than myself is, is talking about mental health. It's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, so passionate that uh, I did write a children's book that uh, has a very strong mental health focus. Um, so yeah, that's, but look what, I guess what, uh, inspired me to the, write the book and what really started my journey off in, in wanting to talk and, and think about all things mental health was that 36 years ago, my best friend, uh, Christina very tragically lost her 16 year old daughter to suicide. Um, uh, her name was Emily. And the, the book that I wrote uh, is, is certainly in legacy and in memory of her. It's not Emily's story that I tell, uh, but certainly is something that I'm very proud to have as a legacy for her. So it's called Emily and the Very Big Feeling. Um, but yeah, Christina and I met in preschool. Uh, so I have a very, even longer than you and I, yeah. <laughs> a very long history of, of friendship. You probably wouldn't have liked me when I was in preschool. <laughs> I don't. I would have been very annoying. I'm actually really surprised that Christina still talks to me. <laughs> <laughs> I have quite a few memories that I'm not entirely proud of. I was, <laughs> I was a bit of a rat bag. So the fact that she has stood by me for all these years is uh, testimony to how wonderful she is. Uh, funny enough, she's also been on her own health and fitness journey. She lost over 60 kilos. Whoa. Yeah. She's going to need to come on our podcast. Yeah, you need to have this girl. Definitely. Uh, we should have two podcasts. <laughs> she even went on to also become a qualified PT. Oh, wow. And started her own business on the Central Coast. Still running, still operating? Yeah, yeah. Shout, out, of, shout yeah. out to uh, Shine Bright Fitness sure. at, uh, on the Central Coast. I've actually got people, I think, uh, her clients of mine have all moved up there. So that actually oh, might come in very handy. Totally. They'll be listening yeah. and they'll get in contact. She also moonlights at uh, F45. Oh, does she? Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic <laughs> franchise. Um, but no, she's a total, you know, gym junkie these days. And uh, and I think definitely, I know, well, I, I know for a fact that uh, today the, the role that exercise plays for her is very much uh, a role of supporting her mental health. Mm. 
Now, you, you've written a book called Emily and the Very Big Feeling. Can you tell me why you chose that title for one? Like what, what inspires that title for you? And, and what message do you want it to get out to people before? Because, you know, they say that people will generally judge a book by its cover, and you shouldn't, but they can, and by its title. What message uh, are you putting into the reader's head just with the title? Where, where are we going with it? What was your image for that? Well, luckily the title, the uh, cover is gorgeous, so yeah. people are going to love it. Um, but look, just before I, I touch on that, something I, I meant to do at the beginning, which I'm, I'm keen to do, is, is I just want to also put out a, a trigger warning, mm-hmm. um, which I do whenever I present for Are You OK as well. Um, obviously, in talking about suicide prevention, which is really important, we are also talking about suicide which, of course, can be a trigger for some people. We're talking about, you know, big emotions. We're talking about those feelings of disconnection and isolation. And, yeah, that can be triggering for some people. So just wanted to, you know, shout out to all your listeners to practice self-care in listening to this podcast. And uh, if they do feel that they need some additional help or support, need to have a conversation, they can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. It's a very good um, piece of information you provide there because we really don't know all the triggers for people. Yeah, like so So depending on and where the conversation goes, it's good to know that there are places like Lifeline that you can call to help with the thoughts and the emotions that you might be going through from hearing things or seeing things, but just in general. Absolutely. And I, and I think the thing to remember is that uh, we think of Lifeline as being a, a crisis intervention service which they are but everyone has a different vision of what it means to be in crisis Mm -hmm. and I think it's important to remember that you don't need to be you know kind of standing on that proverbial bridge to pick up and the phone and have a conversation with them you know it's really for anyone that is is feeling kind of lonely or helpless or hopeless in any way and and you might not think that you're in a crisis but if you're feeling alone and you're feeling disconnected and you're feeling without hope, that they're a great place to start. Awesome. And, and I mean, Lifeline is one of many, right? There's yeah, absolutely. F- there's many, which is fantastic and what we need. And especially in the time that we're living in at the moment where COVID-19, it's just a, th- it's just a spanner in, yeah. in 2020 and it's just throwing people. And so it's really good that regardless, I think it's a good thing to shout out to. Yeah. So thanks. So my, my title uh, that you mentioned, Emily and the Very Big Feeling, um, my mission was that, uh, look, I'm going to go backwards for a second. Yep. <laughs> We're going to be very organic with our flow here. 100%. Um, so initially after Emily died, I did start getting really passionate about wanting to learn more about, uh, you know, the, the, the science and the, the studies behind suicide. I, I wanted to be an advocate for suicide prevention, which, you know, meant I also wanted to understand the whys. Um, and, and what the studies tell us, you actually can do a master's in suicide research or suicide ideology. Um, and what the research shows us that while everyone's journey with mental health, everyone's journey with mental illness is very unique, that there are certainly some common factors that appear to be present in, in anyone that's experiencing um, you know, any self-harm or any suicidal thinking is that there is a sense of isolation, there's a sense of disconnection and there's a, they call it a a sense of burden 
<laughs> basically a sense of being a burden. Um, same with the belonging, they actually refer to as a thwarted sense of belongingness. Um, but essentially the three things are that the feeling like they are all alone, alone yeah. feeling like they don't connect meaningfully with the people around them in their lives. Um, so they might have a lot of supports, they might have a lot of friends, but they feel disconnected in some way from them. Yeah, like that's the whole saying that you're in a room full of people and yet you feel alone. Absolutely. And we heard that a lot when um, Robin Williams mm-hmm. was, was lost. And we hear oh, that wow. a lot uh, when, when people are lost to suicide, that they were sometimes, you know, the light in the room. Um which is, is sometimes, I guess, overcompensating mm. as well and wanting to be... Which makes it so hard to pick for people because when you're trying to help people or if you are helping people, I mean, if you're the light in the room, no one's asking if you're okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so, well, that's what got me involved with, with Are You OK? Because as I started to learn more, I could see the immense value and importance in, in the Are You OK? model. Because by encouraging people to look out for one another and to start conversations with one another, what you're actually doing is if you look at that triangle of those three factors and you think about, you know, structural science and engineering, we, we take away a, you know, a key foundation and we weaken the whole structure. So if, so, if we know these three key things that are really integral to someone's risk of suicide and we take even one of them away, we're actually doing something really important to protect that person from the risk of suicide. So by asking someone if they're okay, but more than that, when you really look into you know, the resources on UK's website and you really look into what you know, their, their model consists of, it's about making someone feel seen and making someone feel heard because you're not just saying, are you okay? You're saying, I'm asking because I've noticed that your appearance has changed or I've noticed that you have changed some of your routines or habits or I've noticed that something in your demeanour has changed. Um, you know, you used to always have lunch with us all on Friday at work and now you don't. You know, you used to always be on time to work and now you're not. Um, And what happens when you actually call someone on those subtle changes and you actually take the time to say, well, this is what I've been thinking and this is what I've been concerned about, you're actually saying to that person, I've seen you, I've noticed you. So if you think about the fact that, you know, someone at risk feels isolated and feels disconnected, you're taking time out of your day to check in with them, you're demonstrating that you've seen them in a really real and meaningful way, you've, you've paid attention and the fact that you're taking the time to you know, give of yourself to have this conversation is also reinforcing that, hey, you're not a burden to me, you know, this is not a big deal for me to take you out for a coffee and have a conversation with you. So more than just take away one of the risk factors, you're really having an impact on all of the risk factors. So that got me really passionate about getting involved with with Are You Okay, which I did. But I then started thinking about that in terms of Emily's very specific journey. (coughs) And uh, 
Sorry, just had to, I'm just going to have a sip of my coffee because <laughs> coffee fixes everything. <laughs> I'm jealous that you have a coffee and I don't. Sorry, I was going to ask if you no, wanted one. I, I feel really fine. bad now. If anyone knows me and knows I don't like coffee, that's fine. Oh, no, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I started thinking about the Are You Okay model and, and how that related to what I knew about Emily's journey, and what I knew is that she was on our radar. She was on a lot of people's radar. Um, while, you know, you never prepare yourself and you never expect that to happen and certainly it came as a huge shock um, because we, we genuinely thought that she was doing okay we were aware that she had been diagnosed with clinical depression. We were aware that she was requiring medication to try and you know, improve her brain chemistry and the way that, that her brain processed her emotions. Um, and, and so we were aware that there was a struggle and a battle that she was fighting. But she also had a lot of people checking with her. She had a lot of people asking her if she was okay. She had a lot of friends around her. She was, you know, talking to professionals. Um, so when I thought about the fact that she was very connected, um, she was, I thought that, that she was very seen. Um, and I also thought that, that those that loved her were doing a, a good job of, um, you know, really letting her know that, that she wasn't a burden in any way. Um, that I realised that, Somewhere along the line that she had lost the kind of capacity to, to talk really, or when I say lost, may not have even had it, um, you know, the capacity to be able to be really vulnerable and to talk with complete openness and honesty about what she was feeling. Um, and, you know, that kind of is the very much the story of the book in, in that it's about a, a little girl that has some very big feelings and they're feelings that she doesn't understand which is normal for a child to you know they, they, they don't understand what they're feeling they just know what they're feeling they can't necessarily give it a language they can't necessarily explain it to someone else without having that vocabulary that maybe they've been taught or maybe that they've practiced so she has in the little girl in the book um, has all these big feelings start to come up and, and she has a lot of people asking her if she's okay. She has people sort of following, you know, I guess this are you okay model of noticing or you don't seem yourself, you know, I, I'm worried about you. But because she doesn't understand what she's feeling, um, you know, she feels like she just needs to keep it to herself. And so she keeps saying in the book, nothing's wrong, I'm okay. She tells her friends, no, nothing's wrong. She tells her mum, nothing's wrong. And it's only really through the, the perseverance of, of her mum to keep that conversation going that eventually she learns the, the value of, of being honest about what you're feeling. And if you're not okay, sorry, I just hiccup. <laughs> um, it, that if you're not okay, um, letting someone know and, and asking for help. And so I wanted to give children a platform from which they could start their own conversations and parents too. I wanted to make it a little bit easier because I really think that the, the problem for Emily and the problem faced by so many young people 
is they're so passionate and, and invested in not disappointing the people that love them that it, it just becomes almost an impossible expectation for them to be honest with those people. And, and you think about honesty, you know, as a topic. So if we have a friend say to us, you know, oh, what do you think of my new boyfriend? You know, <laughs> what do you think of this dress? Does it make my bum look big? Honesty can be hard <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> you know, we don't want to hurt people. You know, we, we, we have this honesty is the best policy, but I think probably over 90% of adults probably don't apply that in their everyday life, you know. We sometimes, you know, will favour a, a little white lie or a gentle diversion, change of topic, or all, all these different strategies that we will employ over having to necessarily be honest with someone about what we are really thinking or feeling. So when you're thinking about the, the problem facing young people in regards to suicide prevention and mental health, for me it really comes down to the safety and honesty because I know myself that I don't sometimes feel safe to tell people what I'm thinking or feeling and I'm a 42-year-old woman. <laughs> so if I find it hard to be honest with my boss about why I need a half day off or be honest with my friend about what I really think about their boyfriend, mm. how do you expect a 10, 12, 14, 16-year-old child to go to a, a parent and, and tell them that they don't feel like they want to be on this planet anymore? Like that's a whole new level of honesty and we're expecting something of a, of a young child that most adults would really struggle to do. Yeah, 100%. What <laughs> and so the book travels down the journey for Emily of learning how to do that or what? how so does it... So really, like, I mean, there's two things that I wanted to do in the book. I, I wanted to make it a little bit easier for some of those hard conversations to start. So there is a visual representation of, of some of the things that a young person who's struggling with, with depression or anxiety might feel. So there's a bit in the book where it talks about there's an elephant that comes, sits on her chest at night when she goes to bed. There's another mention that there's now this sort of army of angry butterflies that, that live in her stomach and every time she you know, is faced with certain things that make her nervous or anxious, you know, she, that, that feeling of their, their wings flapping harder. Um, and so what it's designed to do is by actually allow a child to take that opportunity when they're sharing the book with a carer or a parent to say, you know what, sometimes I feel that way too. Because that's a much easier way to start a really important conversation than for a child to have to try and start up all by themselves. So, um, yes, yeah, so I wanted to provide that platform for conversations to start or, or naturally from. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to do is in the book, eventually through persistence, Emily is worn down and, and eventually does open up and talks and talks and talks and there's a line where it says that, you know, her and her mum talked all afternoon until the sun went down and the stars come out and uh, then there's a, a beautiful part about her mum says you know you see all those stars up there well 
you, my darling, are just like one of those beautiful stars and I don't need to know what you are made of in order to love you. But just like the stars up there, we all shine our brightest when we shine together. So I wanted to provide the messaging that the love and support that surrounds you as a young person is never dependent on you needing to have the answers. It's not dependent on you needing to be perfect. It's not dependent on you needing to be brave or strong or perfect or, or happy. You know, and, and that's, we were talking before we, we kicked off about that topic, the topic of children and their, their happiness. And one thing I've noticed as a parent myself um, and, and noticed, you know, working, you know, I guess as an as a ambassador for, for mental health and, and being very passionate about children's mental health, you know, clear to say, we just want to put it out there, I'm not a clinician. <laughs> I have no formal training except my own lived experience and, and my passion that has led me to learn as much as I can. Which can be very valuable in itself, right? A- absolutely, you know. Um, but one thing that, that I've personally really embraced in terms of learning is I believe there to be a really really strong correlation that that children uncover quite early on in life between our happiness as a parent and the child's happiness because the reality is as a parent we're constantly stressed. We're constantly worried that we're doing a good job. These little critters do not come with a manual and it, it is painful. <laughs> it is soul-destroying sometimes to try and work out what the right thing to do is. So we're plagued with constant you know, self-judgment, self-loathing, you know, second-guessing ourselves, you know, comparing ourselves. Like it's a, it's a battlefield out there being a parent. But what we do is that from a place of love, you know, it is, it is from a genuine place of wanting the very best for our children and wanting them to be as, as healthy as they can be, we tend to put a lot of focus on wanting our children to be brave, strong, resilient, courageous, that we sometimes forget to remind them that no one is all of those things all of the time. And the other thing we do is that we tend to not be very good at hiding the fact that we want them to be happy. <laughs> we feel better when they're happy. So you can imagine that, you know, a lot of cases there could be of a, a young child who, you know, and, and the evidence is there that children can experience, uh, you know, the, the gradual onset of, of mental illness or poor mental health from quite an early age. It's not something that's just, you know, reserved for teenagers. Um, so, but you can imagine in a lot of households, not all of them, but a 10-year-old child coming to their parents and saying, I'm really depressed. There's going to be a lot of parents out there that's first response is what could you possibly have <laughs> to be depressed about? Do you know there's children starving in Africa right now? <laughs> you know, you've got toys, you've yeah. got, you know, I bought you this, I bought, you know. And, and certainly when our children behave with, you know, being ingrate- ungrateful, which they do from time to time, us as adults 
often forget to practice gratitude quite frequently and so do children. But it's certainly not an uncommon conversation in most houses to be, you know, I do so much for you. You know, do you not understand or appreciate, you know, all I do is try and make you happy. And you're not. And (laughs) And you're not. (laughs) And it's wrecking my life. (laughs) And look, and I say these things. the starts, the the, the seeds of burden, like to to feel like a burden on your mum or your your mum or dad and... And look, I, I want to be really clear in saying that I'm saying this without any judgment, you know. That exactly right. And I think, I, like, I, you're sitting here saying I've said the exact same oh, things to Quinn. I've said it, you know. <laughs> and yet I still know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that's the thing is that, you know, we don't expect our children to be perfect. We shouldn't expect ourselves yeah. to be perfect. And, and, and what I personally would like to see more of is is – that conversation about the fact that, you know, our mental health is, is just like our physical health and it sits on a, a sliding scale. And at one end you have that peak fitness, you know, optimal health where you are 100% and, and doing great. And at the far end of the spectrum you have illness, you know, whether it's physical illness or it's mental illness. You have something's going wrong in my body. I'm not doing okay. I need to bring in interventions. And we're kind of used to the fact that our, our physical health slides up and down that scale our whole entire life. But we seem to have forgotten to really talk to our children and, and have conversations in our households and our workplaces and our communities about the fact that mental health is exactly the same and it slides up and down this scale right throughout our lives. So when we're encouraging our children to be resilient and when we're encouraging them to be brave and to be strong and, you know, if they fall down and we pick them up and we brush, you know, tell them to brush themselves off and, you know, shake it off and get back on the proverbial horse, that's okay, that's good. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to be mindful of having conversations on a regular basis that also let them know that as much as we want them to be happy, as much as we strive in all that we do <laughs> to make them happy, safe and well, that the love and support that surrounds them does not require anything from them. Mm. So if they're not okay, if despite our best efforts they're not happy, despite all the things we do for them, the places we take them, the holidays, the gifts, the technology, the clothes, you know, the time we invest and and give up in order to, you know, help them thrive and grow and learn. If that, despite all of that, there is still a child out there that is struggling to feel content, Mm. struggling to feel like, they are okay, you know, or a worst case scenario, struggling to feel like they want to be here on this planet, Mm. that they don't need to feel ashamed like they're letting us down by having that conversation with us. And and that's really, I guess, at the heart of of the book. I, I wanted to role model not only, you know, what some of those early warning signs look for so that you know look like sorry so that a child can be looking at these beautiful images um shout out to the illustrator lindy longhurst who's a uh, 
ex-Blue Mountains artist, uh, now living in Coffs, who is just amazing. Um, but yeah, her, her images are really just, you know, so engaging and so dreamy and, and make it so easy for a child to be looking at this, you know, rather cute but large elephant sitting on this girl's chest and be able to say to whoever they're reading it with, I know what that feels like. That, yeah, that's such a good such a good way of looking at it. Because what I've always found difficult as as a father is being able to teach Quinn, who is my little girl, my little three-year-old, or at least help her understand how to manage some of her emotions when I don't feel I have a complete ability to manage my emotions. Yeah. I don't regulate some things very well, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> you know what? I, I hear you because I, I really resonate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a lived experience of anxiety, which I know, you know, you know. Yep. <laughs> I get just little, let's do a little flashback for the listeners. I was only telling someone the other day about what a nightmare I am to train <laughs> and mentioned that, that when I first started training with my uh, PT, Shane, that uh, regularly I'd be so horrible to him. I'd walk in and he'd be like, hey, how's your day? And I'd be like, you know what? I don't want to be here. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to do any of this. I'd refuse to do what he would tell me to do and frequently would just burst into tears. And it was all a stress reaction of, you know, how my body felt, uh, how I felt being in a, a gym environment, you know, how I felt about myself and, and all the pressure that, 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 you know, I'm sure you've been around the ringer long enough now, all that baggage that clients will sometimes bring into those sessions um and and I then did get payback as a you know my brief stint as a personal trainer to be on the flip side of of having clients that wanted to you know just cry instead of train (laughs) but someone once said to me your message is in your mess Mm. and uh I really, really like that because actually, and I, and I today, my, my day job when I'm not writing, I work as a case manager in the insurance sector within a dedicated mental health team. And I have a lot of people who often have a real sense of shame and guilt about where their mental health is at. And what I say to them is the same thing I would say to any parent, you know, because I know that. Uh, you know, I hear what you're saying and, and it's something I feel and I'm sure a lot of the people listening, you know, have experienced the same, um, is that when we actually embrace our imperfections, when we embrace the discomfort of vulnerability, we actually start open up something really, really powerful. So, you know, in our house, there are frequent conversations where, you know, I've lost my bundle <laughs> or, you know, I've been, uh, you know, very upset or very triggered or, you know, having an anxious day or... And, you know, we have conversations. There's times that I will snap at my son um, because he's not getting dressed quick enough in the morning or, you know, he's talking back or, you know, and it's always that there's something ongoing on inside my head at the time of the interaction um, that has very little to do about his behaviour and more to do with 
my emotional regulation. So, you know, we don't get it perfect. You know, I do snap at him. We do have tears. We do have fights and arguments. But what we have following them is a conversation about, I'm really sorry that that happened, um, but this is what was going on. And this is what I was feeling. This is what, you know, was going through my head. And, and this is, you know, kind of the background and context to how I reacted. And, and I'm sorry that I didn't make a better choice, but I'm not perfect. <laughs> and what happens as a result of, of being very transparent with him about, uh, you know, the things that I'm not proud of, the things that I don't think I nailed <laughs> in our household, is that then when he comes to me full of guilt and shame and, and self-loathing <laughs> of his choices or a mistake that he's made or something he thinks that he did really badly, that I can actually say to him, okay, well, you know, what about when I do things wrong? Do you forgive me? Do you want me to let it go? Do you want me to, you know, forget about it and, and move on? So what can advice can you give yourself? You know, so it's not about me telling him, don't worry about it, just forget about it. Mm. But it's about me getting him to reflect on the fact that he sees me be imperfect all the time. <laughs> so, you know, it's great to be able to have that dialogue with him and say, if you're waiting for a chance when you're going to get it all right, I hate to tell you, but it's not coming. <laughs> not, not <laughs> because all. we all make mistakes and we all have things that we find challenging and it's different for everybody. Um, but being able for, for a young person to grow up looking around their house, their community, and to realise that they're not the only person that struggles with big feelings is actually super, super powerful. And again, if you think back to those risk factors, that sense of disconnection often comes from, and, and you know, we talk about social media a lot and social media gets a, a bad rap sometimes and look, maybe not without cause. <laughs> but, uh, you know, part of the, the problem with it is that we everyone's putting out their best life to the most part. So everybody is, you know, showing their, their best meal, their best outfit, their best hair day, you know, their best date night, their best family snaps. They're not showing the, the yelling and the tantrum and the, you know, but some people are, yeah. like yourself, yep. uh, you know, the, the likes of, you know, Tanya Hennessy, Celeste Barber, there's a Central Coast blogger that featured the book recently that, you know, does a lot of this as well called Mel Watts. Um, these people are, are turning that around and, and saying, you know what, we can use it for good, not evil. Mm -hmm. And when we start actually sh representing the mess that goes on in all of our lives, we give other people permission to not be perfect either. Definitely. So, you know, and that's what we need to remind children of and, and that's what children need to be able to see when they look around them. They need to see that the world is full of imperfect people doing their best and putting their hand up when they're not okay. Yeah. And that's what we role model through conversations about our own mental health 
with others, we actually give them permission to speak up as well. And, and that's really the, the greatest gift you can give anyone. Totally. And I, and I absolutely love the your messages in your mess. Mm, I love that too. Because, well, and it's funny though, because you say all that stuff and I 100% agree. And I remember just the other day posting for the third time in three days, a relatively negative post. I think I posted um, about like a tough day that I'd had and that was like almost continually. And I'm like, I feel like, I feel like most of my days are like this, where they're mostly negative. But in that message, in that mess, I was able to decipher a pretty powerful message. I think I wrote something about taking your knee and it's okay to rest with your knee on the ground and your head down because it's the moment where you're going to build the most energy. It's the, it's the point in your moment where you are cultivating energy to rise again. And it's amazing because I'm like, well, I went through that messy day and I've been through several messy days in a row that I've posted about. And in each one, there was a significant message that it is okay that it is not a bad thing, that this isn't the glamorous side of life only, that there is a perfect, harmonious, equal balance of good and bad depending on your vision at the time and where you choose to spend that, that energy. And so I chose in that post to use that mess to create a message and that is perfectly depicting of how I've been posting in the last you know week or two because every day has been like that. Absolutely, all your posts, Shane, as long as I've known you, the the one current thread through everything you do is is a really deep authenticity. Mm. And, you know, I think that's that's and I wonder why we're friends. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what that's from. I just, I've never, I've never felt like I needed to hide it, you know, which is kind of convenient because there are a lot of people who, who do feel that way. And I think it's now my, my duty to, to show that okay, if I can live my life like that where I'm not necessarily afraid of what others think of my bad day, uh, that I should put that out there and I should send that message to the world because you know, what's the point in going through that if I'm not going to be able to share that because I have, so to speak, broader shoulders to withstand some of the heat that I might get from it, mm. do you know? Yeah. Because I think that can be the fear is that if you put up a bad day more than once in a week, people go, shut up. And I mean, that, you know, don't whinge. Yeah. Or what, like, what have, you, what have you got to complain about? Yeah. Now, you know, <laughs> there's my ex's friend's dad's dog, just, you know, yeah. whatever. And I'm like, that's not what yeah. you want to hear when you're feeling like that. Yeah, totally. But that not that true? That That's what we, you know, that's what we all do. And it's certainly something that I did in a lot of my relationships before I started to empower myself with knowledge uh, about what it means to support someone who is needing to improve their mental health or who's experiencing mental illness and you know I've had to fight with my own anxiety this need to control and I, and I know it's something you know you and I and, and Chloe and I have spoken about as well about that locus of control that that really sits at the heart of anxiety and if I can just nail everything and get all my ducks in a row then I'll be okay and, and everyone ducks move <laughs> no they do they <laughs> flap a lot um but yeah that that sense of and, and so it's very much the same that when someone does then share a problem it makes us feel uncomfortable mm. you know if we if we like the person even more so uh 
you know, we're not very good at sometimes sitting with other people's pain and, and suffering. And there is this tendency to want to fix. But it's, it's needing to be mindful about that it's not your job to fix. You, your job is to listen. Your job is to make that person feel connected and make that person feel seen and make that person feel needed they're needed here on this planet and unfortunately when we try and do the uh oh just don't think about it or you know just do something else or you know just cheer up or just be happy someone says to me once it's a quite i'm a real i'm an extremely sensitive person and the one thing that gets me the most is when someone says shane you're very sensitive (laughs) i grew up my whole life with that why like what, like I can't. Like, you're just so sensitive. Like it's a like a massive burden of mine. Like I am. Like I've got a big problem because I've got sensitivities. Total total segue, but uh, true story. Uh, I once had a very senior manager before a very big um, all teams meeting come up to me and said, "Oh, Celeste, so I just wanted to have a little word with you. We're uh, we're really short on time this particular meeting. So if you could just not talk, <laughs> that would be awesome." True story. <laughs> it's all staff meeting. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's opinion matters. We're all important <laughs> and valid. But please, Celeste, for the love of God, just do not say a word. What did you? What was your response? Oh, I think I cried. I, <laughs> I think I, I think I acted tough and then I think we cried the later. Meeting. That would have been the most sentimental in, in a spiral. Now just sat there and sobbed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Shane knows my sulky uh. face. There was no doubt that I was sulky. Oh wow, that's I love it when people say stuff like that. Like they, they must not think before they speak. Um, I'm still working ten years, you know, into the relationship, or I should say eleven years. Sorry, uh, of convincing my husband that that no one in the history of the universe has ever calmed down from being told to <laughs> calm down. Calm down. What? <laughs> but it comes from place of love, you yeah, know, and, well, and exactly. I think that's it's the that other solution. thing. Trying to solve the problem with yeah. the, the smallest, the least amount of energy possible. Yeah, I want you to feel Fixed better. Now. Can you just feel better? Right, this because moment. when you feel better, I'll feel, feel better. better. Exactly. And and the thing is that that's really what we're doing with a lot of children and young people, mm. unknowingly, and not because we're terrible monsters, not because we're idiots, not because we're bad parents, nope. but because we ourselves have often have very little education or experience you know in terms of building mental health or navigating mental illness uh you know so that lack of experience and that lack of knowledge combined with a a deep protective love for the people in our lives sometimes just leads us down the the wrong course and and has us saying things that that in truth aren't particularly helpful so the more we can question ourselves, the more we can talk to one another, the more we can have resources, you know, available. And, and just to, do I have time for another little segue? I've got plenty of time. <laughs> so uh, actually, I'd prefer if you just didn't yeah, talk. Can you just not talk, Celeste. I brought you here today, <laughs> but your time is over. Um, I, I was in a, a training session once, and I use this a lot in my RUAK presentations because it really gets people thinking um so I was in this training presentation once being run by a psychologist and she kicked it off and said okay so what does everyone think of when I say the words physical health 
and said that you would have been great at this. So the hands went up and it's it's diet and exercise and nutrition and typical you know, hydration, sleep. Thoughts, rhythm, yep. movement, exercise. Strength, you know, longevity. Components of health. Nutrition. <laughs> and it just, you know, I mean, it was, it was easy. Yep. Then she said, what does everyone think of when I say the words mental health? And again, all the hands went up. Bipolar, psychology, medication, mm. schizophrenia, wow. depression, Labels. anxiety. Yeah. And she pointed out that what everyone had just diverted to is a language for mental illness. Yeah. There was no language for, for mental health. And when you think about the way we use the term mental health, someone is, you know, struggling with, well, that's, that's true. If you're struggling with mental health, you're not in that optimal healthy position. But you hear people say mental health condition. What's a mental health condition really when we think about it? If mental health is all those fantastic proactive things that soothe and heal and protect us, like sleep, exercise, mindfulness, relaxation, stress management, hydration. You know, if, if, if all those things that are mental health are positive the same way they are with physical health, so there's no negatives around physical health, that's physical injury or physical different. illness yeah. or sickness. People aren't like, you know, um, death or this <laughs> like things that are correlating with, you know, illness yeah but how do we have a mental health condition you know how is our or the, the problem is that there was a there's issue with their mental health mm. well there wasn't they there was a mental illness that was developing mm -hmm. there was a psychological illness there was a lack of any mental health you know there was a lack of knowledge and priority given to mental health so over time, I don't know if we had it and then lost it or if we've never had it, but I definitely believe that, that as a population, as a nation, and, and really beyond that as a, as a world really, that we don't have a, a really well-practised, readily accessible dialogue and vocabulary with which we can talk about mental health. It tends to be something that always gets talked about in crisis mode. When something's already going wrong, when, you know, we know someone who is, is struggling, that's when we're using the words mental health and we're not using them as a positive, as a proactive, like, you know, let's get physical healthy, let's get healthy, let's get mentally healthy. And, yeah. we, and we don't have those conversations enough. And I, I say to people as well that somehow we just inherently know that and even the people that aren't doing it <laughs> inherently know that you can't sit on a lounge 24 hours a day, have McDonald's three times a day, drink no water, get poor quality of sleep and do no movement and stay in a space of physical health for a long period of time. Same would go for mental health. But I, a lot of clients I work with, you know, that I work with a lot of executives and, and high-profile people who, you know, for the last 10 years been doing 50, 60, 70-hour weeks, mm. you know, never switch off, 
always have the phone, always on the, the emails, you know, don't have holidays, don't do anything, don't, you know, take away meals because it's quick and it's easy, you know, not thinking at all about their mental health. And then, you know, 40, 50, lots of ages, get to a point of, of having that kind of breakdown where their body mentally and physically is now severely damaged from the effects of unrelenting chronic stress mm. over a sustained period of time that amygdalin you know that that parasympathetic nervous system all of those things that that start to become toxic to our health our overall health mental and physical they're then saying i just don't know how this happened i don't know how i got here mm. but if they were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes they might not want to admit it, but if they're honest with themselves, they could say, yeah, well, maybe I shouldn't have drunk two litres of Coke a day for the last decade. I can't you know? abuse for so, the last decade. Yeah, and people don't want to necessarily take ownership, but mm. they really can't avoid it because they know. They know that they made some bad choices. You don't have someone who gets diagnosed with lung cancer who's been a pack-a-day smoker saying, I don't know how this happened. Yeah. So we don't always make the choices that are best for us. Mm. But when it comes to physical health, we seem to inherently, thanks to, you know, healthy Harold yeah. throughout uh, decades, torturing children for decades, <laughs> we, we kids just know, you know, we taught them about the... And here's another one. I get really passionate in case you can't notice. There's yeah. lots of talking with my hands here for those... You I know, wish we had a YouTube channel too. We could put it on. <laughs> for those following along at home, there's lots of hand talking going on. <laughs> Um, oh, now I've forgotten what I was going to say. Well, we went Healthy Harold. <laughs> healthy Harold. No. Oh, it's completely gone out <laughs> of my head. It'll come back to you, watch. Yeah, probably. But it's, it's just that thing that, you know, we we seem to just be, oh, that's right. There See, you go. You come yeah, back. I, was, I was just deliberately fluffing, waiting <laughs> for it to come back. Um, you think about dental hygiene reflect for a moment on dental hygiene um so obviously before we knew too much about dental hygiene kids were losing teeth at an alarming rate so somewhere along the line if we you know you're not really old enough to play along but some of your listeners might be we, we stumbled across mrs marsh <laughs> With the chalk, there was this very famous ad for my whole entire childhood where Mrs. Marsh would teach us about tooth decay and, and if I dip this chalk into this thing of dye, you can see that the dye goes through the chalk and basically teaching us that, that our teeth were, you know, kind of like chalk in that they, you know, would absorb this stuff and that we you need to protect that coating on them and we needed to kind of, you know, keep them healthy and, and strong. Um, I'm probably doing a really bad recap of what oh Mrs. Gosh. Marsh's main messaging <laughs> was, but um, some of you will remember. But uh, what, what we did, though, when we realised there was a problem with tooth decay, we didn't wait for the teeth to fall out. We wanted, we moved very quickly into prevention and in order to prevent tooth decay, what did we do? 
We created specialised tools. We role modelled it. We made time for it in our households. You know, if you think about parents today, a lot of energy goes into role modelling for our children how to care for their teeth. We sing songs. We make it fun, you know. We bribe them with financial (laughs) rewards to be engaged in, you know, teeth. (laughs) So we put a lot of time and energy into it and we didn't ever think that this was something that without that dedicated resources, without that dedicated intent, that that was a problem that was going to get solved all on its own. And I I think that is really important when we're talking about what needs to happen in terms of suicide prevention in in the country. And again, I always say country because, you know, are you okay is obviously Australian-based. I'm in Australia, you know, starts at home. But, you know, just to put in perspective that the current statistic worldwide according to the world health organization is that one person worldwide is lost to suicide every 40 seconds wow it's staggering isn't it wow did you also know that here in australia that suicide is currently the leading cause of death for children aged 5 to 17 so that gives me that when you were talking about that just then isolation being a trigger like a, uh, a component right um what I know we're in the middle of a pandemic and what you just said then triggered my mind to think back to when we had to pull Quinn out of daycare because we were unsure about what was going to happen. We pulled her out of daycare because we had no idea how dangerous it was to children or in people in general. Pulled her out of daycare straight away. She literally would cry at home that there was something wrong with her because she wasn't allowed to go to school anymore. We couldn't communicate a pandemic. She was too young to understand what a virus is. She has no idea. So she believed that there was something wrong with her, so she wasn't allowed to go to school anymore and connect and communicate with her friends. Where do you see us going at this rate, considering we are in absolute isolation, so to speak, right now? Like, we are being told to stay away from each other. We are being told not to interact. We are being told to almost avoid each other from a physical presence, which a human body would absolutely need. And I understand the dangers of spreading a virus. I get it. But I don't know that the, I'm not, because they had none of what you're trying to talk about. You're saying, okay, well, there should have been an, um, some sort of development, more resources to help get mental health. Mm. Yet they weren't doing that then. We're further away than ever away from it than we've ever been in our entire existence. Totally. We are that far away from it. One person every 40 seconds around the world is dying of suicide. Um, uh, just, you know, exactly right. We're getting to a point where I just don't think it's going to get better anytime soon because that's what we need. What you just said is exactly what we need. We need more mental health modeling. We need more mental health topics. We need to be able to develop things that help us do that at home. No one's ever taught me about it. I've just had to put it together. I've had to pull resources and information and do thousands of hours of study to even get my head around my, and I am nowhere near having a hold on it. And now we're isolating and now we're, and like, And so this conversation is only making me a little bit more frustrated in the fact that those statistics are there. Do we lose? (laughs) And where do you compare it? You you can't compare it. Who who plays God? Who says, well, people who die of virus are less valuable than people who die of suicide. And so you, you mean, you can't play God. Like that's like, I get that. And I get that I'm not in a position to play that. But like, I mean, the statistics say this is a pretty alarming situation. Mm. 
And yet I feel it's being worse. And those kids that you were just stating, the statistics between what ages was it? Five, five and 17. And I just want to flag with that that I don't think that statistic indicates that we're losing five-year-olds to suicide. Yeah, yeah. But it's a bracket which is used statistically. Mm-hmm. So the, obviously at 18 you're an adult, uh, under five you're an infant. Yeah. So if we're talking about children the bracket is just automatically 5 to 17. So certainly don't want to try and paint the picture that we're losing children as young as 5. But in that 5 to 17 bracket, which donates donates a child's age, um, that, yeah, suicide is the leading cause of death, not road fatality, not childhood cancers, not backyard drownings. And, wow, there's Mm. been a lot of campaigns. Pool pool body fencing and the... the I mean, that, see that in itself. Like, we're spending more time, attention, and care on pool fences, yeah. which is needed. I get it. Then this isn't – we're not, not getting but it it's, right. But it's because drowning in a backyard pool is considered to be wholly preventable. And that in, in comes the problem is that mental health, mental illness, mm. what – promotes risk factor what are entitles and and you're a really great example of this shane because you've been really open and and transparent and authentic about you know your experiences of childhood which were less than optimal mm-hmm. and so what makes someone two people uh, you know and this is the question that that's always plagued this conversation around resiliency is what made you come out okay and what makes someone else not make it yeah. out? You know, what makes someone who is exposed to drugs not end up with an addiction problem? What? Why is it that some people who, you know, are, are raised in households where substances are abused end up with substance abuse issues? Mm-hmm. You know, people who were, you know, sexually abused as a, a child, some of them end up abusers. Why is it that some people don't make it out and some people do? Yeah. You know, and, and it comes back to that, you know, nature versus nurture and a whole lot of topics that, that we don't understand. And I think that's the real problem when we talk about uh, mental health and what's needed in the mental health space to elevate the conversation and to you know, start really making a difference in the number of people that are lost in Australia and also worldwide to suicide, it involves a conversation that gets really tricky Mm. about why is it that some people, when faced with adversity and challenge and trauma, find a way through and, and some people who maybe haven't necessarily experienced you know, that the same level of challenge, adversity, develop a mental illness and, and become at risk. So I think that that's the issue is that we can't just say, whereas when it comes to backyard drownings, put a fence up, you know, teach your children to swim and always supervise them and we can get that figure down to zero. No one can unfortunately give us a perfect roadmap of how we can get the suicide figure down to zero. I can tell you what, we're heading in a bloody bad direction, I think. <laughs> well, certainly it's tough times, but you, you know, know what we, I mean? like well, we want to promote hope. We want to, <sighs> maybe I should have got you a coffee on the way here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just, and it just frustrates me. Yeah. Because yeah, like, I'm such a connected person. Like, yeah. And I absolutely love and couldn't think of anything worse than and not being 
within you know a meter and a half of somebody yeah. and certainly we you know we're faring a lot better here in New South Wales than, than yeah. people in Victoria and sure. certainly on the news this week was a, a doctor who had written an open letter to the Premier of Melbourne because a Premier of Victoria I should say sorry uh, because as a role of a doctor she was you know looking at children who were starting to develop uh, poor mental health and, and the early warning signs of, of childhood mental illness um, at alarming rate and definitely pandemic related and you know, I guess the answer, it's very hard with children, particularly with children as young as Quinn. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that that's a real challenge. But I guess it, it still comes back to, for, you know, for children a little bit older, um, you know, that messes in your message. Yeah. No, hang on. <laughs> I get that wrong sometimes. Your message is in your mess. Um, in that, you know, we're all in it together. And to be honest, that's another thing that interests me. Is uh, I had this conversation with my mom, and, and you often hear older people really struggle to work out what's going on with today's youth. Um, and so, and my mom said to me once, well, "What do you think it is? What's the issue? Because this just didn't seem to be there when I was growing up." And I thought about it, and, and it's a really valid reflection for, for someone to have who's experienced war, who's experienced recession, you know, deep poverty, um, you know, smallpox outbreaks, Spanish flu. Uh, actually, smallpox, I'm happy with the pandemic we've got, thank you. Yeah, Keep that where exactly. It is. <laughs> so, you know, and, and all I can think of, and, and look, I'm not an expert and I just, it's, you know, resonates with me. It either will resonate with you or it won't. But what I think is the big difference is, is that connectivity in that when my mum was growing up or if you think about people who did live through a war, um, everyone was going through the same. So there is a sense of, okay, this is really, really hard, mm. but you're, you're connected. Yeah. The problem when we look at again back to those risk factors when it comes to, you know, people being at risk of suicide, that disconnection. We talked about being in a room full of people. Mm. The issue is that when you are looking on Facebook and you're seeing everyone living their best life and everyone else just seems to be able to navigate work and relationships and, you know, not having enough money and they just do it, you know. And so if you're sitting there feeling paralysed and, completely disabled by your emotions and you see everyone else just getting on with the business of living then you know you do you feel so disconnected that everyone somehow knows the secret to success except you you know so I think the certainly the the pandemic has been tough and, and I think we're going to see a residual impact even once restrictions ease and, and borders open I, I think that we're going to have some work to do mm. but I think the saving grace lies in that there is at least a sense of connection in it. and I think it's a little bit rougher totally for agree. children yeah. because you know they, they don't understand but I think for adults and, and I actually know some adults that you know do live with quite significant uh, mental illness and 
they've actually felt a little bit better (laughs) because no longer is it them isolating because they can't face going out. Now everyone's isolating. So the pressure's been off them a little bit to an extent of, you know, people aren't trying to get them out of the house because everyone's doing it. Um, And so suddenly they had people that were ringing up and and they were able to meaningfully engage, Mm. which they haven't always been able to do because they're having a lived experience that most people aren't having. And now suddenly it's a bit of a level playing field in that, if you're someone who already has some kind of lived experience of social disconnection or isolation, you're suddenly got a lot to share with, you know, family members and people around you who might be experiencing it for the first time. Well, you're right. It, that does give me hope. It might be the down before the up, right? Because now yeah. everyone has a taste or a dose of at least what that feels like of disconnect or isolation, which is two of the pillars and just the burden yeah. that we may or may not understand the feeling of that we need to learn and that might be easier to teach in the future. Because we have a frame of reference to draw back on. So, I mean, you know, the kids growing up might now be the, the changes, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. They we, might work the hardest. You know, someone comes to you and, and talks about, you know, their feelings of social isolation, whereas many of us may never have had a point of reference before. Yeah, that, that's right. opened up. That is know? a good point. That does there's give al- me There's always hope. hope. There's always, a, there's there's always, always a, hope. There's always a way and there's always hope. And the other thing is, you know, again, social media, you think about how much that is continually evolving. Um and, you know, you think about the fact that when social media first started, it, it, it was full of this very toxic, you know, comparative world, um, you know, of always wanting to one-up someone. And, and certainly Instagram, these, you know, Instagram models and Instagram couples. and um, But people are embracing the that messiness of life and you know people like Celeste Barber and Mm. Tanya Hennessy and Mel Watts and there's so many out of you know out there that are actually amassing these huge followers you know followings because they're showing pictures of their stretch marks or they're showing pictures of you know tummy rolls or you know they're showing the fact that they can't dance or they you know have a bad hair day or you know that their kitchen is messy or their house is messy and so you know we didn't have that when social media first come out no one was really brave enough to go there to do that yeah and, and I always say that I mean it, it's fair and like like it's fair and fair for people to want to put the best sides of their lives as long as their message reflects real life situation oh, we yeah. want things to be pretty we want things to be nice and we can't blame people you're not a bad person if you're not going to put a bikini shot yeah, up exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's not happening and it's, and folks it's, it's, if you're waiting for it stop now if there's no if there's no mess well then there should be a, a positive message and if there's a if there's a big mess that's very visible then there is a very yeah. blatant obvious message I mean in boundaries boundaries are important boundaries are unique and you know you're allowed to have boundaries about what you're prepared to share oh. with the world you know and how much you want to let people boundaries. in I don't have any sometimes <laughs> but you know what if you if you can live without them then you you have a a huge power and a gift to give people but on the flip side, if there's something that you really need in your life, that, that that's okay too. Um, but I, th- I certainly think that there, there is always hope that through continuing to promote authenticity over perfection, that we can, you know, really start to, to shift the tide of, of 
you know, having that that big gap of, of knowledge and understanding about what it takes to stay mentally healthy. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the very first thing is, you know, talking, mm. talking about our own mental health journey, talking about how we promote it, where we struggle with it, where our shortfalls are, what our experiences, our lived experience of mental illness are, and starting to realise that mental illness is not a dirty word. Yeah, no. You know, and it's a someone you rocks into the office on Monday, oh, how was your weekend? Oh, actually, it was a bit rubbish. I, you know, got woke up and I had this really bad headache and I went to the doctor and my blood pressure is through the roof and uh, apparently I'm, you know, at risk of a stroke and I, I need to start taking medication. I've got to lose 10 kilos and... Oh, I just, you know, was devastated. That That's an okay conversation. Yeah. Yet there's very few people would do that. that would walk in Through fear and of judgment say, and, well, I'm how was your week? Well, no, not even that, but let's turn it around. How was your weekend? Oh, actually, it was really rough. I just, you know, was sitting there and I felt really alone and I just couldn't get my thoughts under control and they were really dark and took me to a really dark place and... You know, I actually really felt like I was going to harm myself and I had to, you know, end up calling Lifeline about 2 o'clock in the morning and now I've seen my GP and i you know got a mental health care plan but he thinks I probably need some medication and have to go see a psychologist and what, like, you know, one conversation seems completely socially acceptable, acceptable. Yeah. and one conversation seems a little bit heavy. <laughs> And that's where our body of work is. You know, let's make those conversations more normal, less heavy. Mm. You know, let's talk about our feelings just with, you know, I, there was a great um, Glenn Close. Who is Glenn Close? Uh, it sounds like a familiar name, but uh, I can't put a face to it. Right. Can we open up the lines and get callers <laughs> to... Uh, Look, I, I feel like I'm on the radio now with these professional Looking mics. Well. I'm just embracing it. But, uh, okay, look it up. I don't know who Glenn Close is, but they're, they're famous. Oh, hang on. Right. He's on to it. Uh, Actor? Yeah. It's a lady. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. It is a lady. Um, yeah, she's an actress. She's a pretty famous actor. We say actor now, don't we, for both genders? I think so, yeah. Um. Anyhow, I did read a quote once by Glenn Close, and I'm just going to paraphrase because I won't remember it. Wow, she's actually long considered one of the greatest actresses of, all, of our time. Oh, there you go. So she knows what she's talking about, folks. But uh, I did read a quote from her once that said, what mental health, no, it was actually what mental illness, what mental illness, because she got it right, what mental illness needs is more sunshine and more open conversation. And, you know, it, that, that stuck with me and I always get this sense of we need to drag these topics out of the dark closet and soak them in the sunshine for a bit. And that's where the hope comes from, you know. This too shall pass, this pandemic will pass, you know, it'll morph, it'll shift, it'll change. Life itself is constantly changing, growing developing you know so life is about you know taking the good with the bad and you know doing our very best to carve a way through that feels authentic that feels meaningful um 
And yeah, we will continue to do that. But along the process, I think that the one thing that we can all do is think about dragging some of that stuff out into the sunshine and letting it soak it up. And through beautiful written books like your like your one that you've just released in March, where can we oh, find a copy? You. How can how can <laughs> people listening buy a copy? So you can head to the website. I am 100% independent and a uh, good time to mention that 10% of all profits, every book sold, goes to Are You OK? to help them fund the amazing work that they're doing. Um, but yeah, you can check out the website. It's got a, more about the, the background story to how this book come about. It's got some uh, resources that you can refer to if you need them. Uh, but that's www.projectemily. Beautiful. So uh, soft covers are available for $25 posted Australia-wide. Beautiful. We will... Do post internationally too, but cost more. Yeah, well, especially in this time of the week. <laughs> slower, <laughs> much slower too. Thank you so much for your time today, Celeste. I, uh, I want to thank you for putting yourself out there to, to be the voice um, for many people who don't feel confident enough to speak up and, and, and out, uh, outwardly. Um, having good suggestions, good thoughts, and provoking um, content. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for that. And if people want to speak with you directly, is that something that you do? Um, Maybe someone wants to chat with you, you know, they're having some hard times and they feel compelled. Absolutely. How can they find you? As we've uh, covered and experienced, I like to talk. (laughs) Thank you for letting me talk, Shane. No, Many welcome. people have tried to stop me from talking in the past. But, you know, you're one of the good ones. Specific boss who will name, <laughs> shall not name. Nameless. Uh, but yeah, I, lo- I love conversation. Um, so yeah, hit me up. Uh, there is an email address that you can go through the website. You can follow the book uh, via Facebook or Instagram uh, and message me through either of those platforms as well or shoot me an email at info at projectemily.com.au. But yeah, always happy to talk. Uh, obviously, pandemic is making things challenging, but certainly, you know, available to visit uh, schools and uh, groups and, and things like that to do author visits as well. Um, and as a Are You OK community ambassador, can also always tie in that, that Are You OK presentation as well. Super valuable. And um, hopefully I can add all of that into the show notes. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be letting you rub it out for me. And just just add the web page <laughs> and take it from there. Everything goes to here. Thank you so much for your time today, Celeste. I do appreciate every single second of it. Hope you had some fun. It was amazing. I will I will be back anytime you have me. We have lots to talk. Celeste is a she's a ball of knowledge about all sorts of topics. So if you can I think of what I was making talk about, a uh, weight joke, no. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. A ball of information, not physical <laughs> attributes. <laughs> a ball of sugar. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, Have a good time. If you guys want to like and subscribe to our channel, that would be fantastic. It would help us. I don't know. I assume it helps us get to more people. Um, Sharing is the best way to do that, though. So if you see this post come up, share it. Sharing is caring. It is caring, and it goes a long way. So thank you so much, guys. And until next time, hope you stay healthy and happy.